and welcome to Well Read with Justin Chapman. I am your host, Justin Chapman, the author of the book Saturnalia, Traveling from Cape Town to Kampala in Search of an African Utopia, a memoir about my travels across Africa. The book was published by Rare Bird Books, which is the broadcaster of this podcast, so thanks again to Rare Bird for having me. Uh, last week, I spoke with Matt Horman, a writer, journalist, and historian based in Pasadena, about his story on a white racist mob that burned down Pasadena's Chinatown in 1885 in what is today Old Town Pasadena. It's a fascinating story, and I encourage everyone to go read it on PasadenaWeekly.com. Listen to last week's episode of Well Read. My guest today is my good friend, Ellen Snortland. A writer, teacher, coach, performer, self-defense advocate, activist, and filmmaker based in Altadena, California. Ellen has a regular column in Huffington Post and Pasadena Weekly, and she is the author of the books Beauty Bites Beast, Awakening the Warrior Within Women and Girls, and The Safety Godmothers, the ABCs of Awareness, Boundaries, and Confidence for Teens. She has a JD from Loyola Law School. She founded the first all-female theater company in the early 70s, acted in and directed several TV shows during the 80s, attended United Nations World Conferences and annual UN meetings as an NGO delegate and journalist, became a goodwill ambassador for the National Women's History Project, gave a TEDx talk on personal safety, performs a one-woman show called Now That She's Gone about her hilarious and sometimes torturous relationship with her Norwegian mother, teaches a writer's workout class, does personal book writing, coaching, and serves on several boards, including Consumer Watchdog, Impact Personal Safety, and 5050 Leadership, a nonprofit that envisions more women and girls in leadership positions. She's had a remarkable career, and I'm so glad she's on the show today. So, Ellen, thanks so much for joining me. Geez, I'm tired just listening to my <laughs> my, my CV. <laughs> I'm going to go take a nap it's now. Quite a, quite a number. Yeah, really. <laughs> I don't know how you did it all. <laughs> Me neither. <laughs> Actually, I do. Um, when I um, when I was 19, I was in a flood that killed 237 people in Rapid City, South Dakota, and out of 27 people in my neighborhood, only seven people survived, and uh, three of those were me and my parents, and um, I wow. saved them from drowning, and for a 19-year-old, it was a wake-up call. It's like, oh, oh, wait a second. I could die. Yeah. <laughs> I could die any minute. <laughs> and so I it really like, okay, so this ain't a rehearsal. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get to it. So yeah, I was lucky and, that and way. You certainly did. <laughs> and you're uh, Norwegian, and you bake these delicious uh, Norwegian funnel cakes. Are they called? Uh, cron- no, no, oh no, they're not funnel cakes. No, <laughs> no, they're called kransakaka, which is Norwegian for crown cake, and uh, uh-huh. they're a special occasion uh, cake. So I call myself a, a a writer, fighter, and baker because uh, mm. you know I'm keeping this tradition alive. But it's a really wonderful, wonderful way to celebrate. So. Yeah, I do a lot of th- things, and I'm proud of that. Yeah, and they're delicious, too. Um, now, now, so were you born in Norway or South Dakota? No. No, uh, my parents weren't either, although they sounded like they just got off the boat, you know. Uh, they lived in a tiny little town in North Dakota where a lot of the people spoke Norwegian and had never bothered to learn English because, you know, it was kind of a waste of time. And um, they they had a very uh, insular uh, Scandinavian upbringing. My dad didn't learn English until he was seven, 
And um, huh. that's, but that, that was true of a lot of the homesteading areas in the Great Plains. Um, just like any other immigrant community in a big city, for instance, you find out where Cousin Oli and Inger lived, and they all moved there. So they, they did the uh-huh. same thing in the Dakotas and right. Minnesota and Wisconsin and all those places. So when, when and how and why did you make the trek to Southern California? Oh, man, I knew when I was six years old that uh, I didn't belong in uh, the Dakotas. <laughs> man, I stuck out like a sore thumb. <laughs> I was loud and uh, raucous, and I didn't really learn how to keep my head down. Um, mostly, too, I just didn't have the temperament of a lot of the Scandinavians around there. Uh-huh. But I did have their politics. There was a really big swath of... Um, rural socialism in the areas that we all grew up in. Um, Norwegian immigrants um, really, really knew the power of um, co-ops and um, uh, farmers' union. And uh, there was a called, you know, the prairie progressives were very, very powerful. McGovern came out of that tradition and Hubert Humphrey to some degree. And so my dad, I, I used to answer the phone, and um, it could be somebody like McGovern or Humphrey calling my father, because my dad was a, a big old hairy Democrat in the prairies. <laughs> <laughs> um, and uh, were you always a writer from a young age? I didn't really uh, consider myself a writer, although I did, and, but I was a voracious reader. I frequently uh, thank librarians because if I'd not had the library, I probably would have been a, an axe murderer. So I, every time I get a chance to thank librarians, I do because um, that was fewer people dead and me not behind bars. <laughs> like yeah. I would plow through books like, you know, three, four a week. And I was always going for prizes about who could read the most books in a week and really just saved my life. So I think That's the foundation of, yeah. for a good writer is being a reader. Yeah. You know? Yeah, absolutely. So that uh, that's the path that leads to it for sure. Well, um, it's one way. So, so, it's a it's a good way. Yeah. Yeah. Well, so what inspired you to write your first book, Beauty Bites Beast? Uh, what inspired me to write it? Yeah. Um, well, I. Uh, <laughs> um, like many couples in Los Angeles, my second husband uh, and I had met for dinner. We had two cars, and we met for dinner and then drove home, arriving at our 5,000-square-foot restored craftsman, which was three blocks east of MacArthur Park. And for people who know L.A., that was like an intense neighborhood. And we had restored this craftsman, and... um I suddenly heard my husband rapping on my driver's side window saying, stay in the car. Somebody's broken into the house. It was straight up midnight. And sure enough, I looked over and somebody had taken a brick and broken the window on the door and reached in and opened the door. So he goes in, my second husband, and I shook myself out of my adrenaline uh, freeze And I went, wait a second, what kind of feminist am I to let my husband go into a dark house at midnight uh, to what? 
wrestle somebody. I mean, he had had high school wrestling. That's it. So I thought, uh-huh. boy, I better get my ass out there, and I did. And I, as I was about ready to cross the threshold into our home, a man in a ski mask was coming up the basement stairs, and we met at the threshold. He raised up the knife and was ready to plunge it into me. And wow. uh, I had a little voice go, do something, do it now. And I did, and I screamed so loudly, the man dropped the knife, grabbed his ears, and ran like hell. And wow. that <laughs> that was my first um, foray into uh, my now uh, longstanding obsession with how come we don't prepare people for violent encounters. I mean, we drill right. for earthquakes, we drill for fires, we drill for we we take out car insurance because we're, we've got a pretty healthy relationship with understanding that uh, something could happen with fire or even swimming is self-defense with water, you know, and mm-hmm. we we prepare for all sorts of things that could kill us, including food preparation. We wash our hands. We know there's a connection between cleanliness and dying from our food. Uh, we've yeah. accepted all these things, but we have not accepted the idea that uh, people prepare for violence, especially preparing girls and women for violence, yeah. which is Absolutely. highly irresponsible in my um, estimation. And mm-hmm. uh, the World Health Organization says that at least one in three women are assaulted in their lifetime, which is ginormous and probably conservative. Probably yeah. conservative. And w- yet we don't give them the tools to deal with violence while it's happening? Really? That's to me nuts. Yeah. It just uh, reinforces uh, the danger of it. Exactly, exactly. And uh, it reinforces uh, victim blaming insofar as the only way we prepare girls for violence is to see, to keep themselves as inconspicuous as possible or absent. So, you know, the advice is stay in after dark and, you know, don't participate in the world and, uh, you know, be always be with a man (laughs) it's just like okay wow this is pretty medieval approach to things (laughs) as far as i'm concerned um so so did you did you uh, always know you wanted to turn that book into a documentary or how did that come about ah oh well no um i didn't i i did get my degree in theater and film at uc irvine and I loved filmmaking, um, but I didn't really pursue it because I had pretty much an on-camera thing going, although I directed some TV in the 80s and loved it. Um, what happened is a man who uh, owned a factory in Tijuana, and he still owns it actually, read Beauty Bites Beast, and he emailed me and he said, oh man, I'm never going to be able to relate to women the same way. Um, I mm-hmm. didn't really understand how threatening it can be to be walking around in a woman's body. I mean, I'm tall, I'm blonde, I'm privileged, I'm well off, and nobody ever harasses me. Nobody ever calls, cat calls me on the street. I'm, I'm not constantly reminded of my body. I'm not constantly reminded of my gender. And uh, right. now having read your book, I'm just really appalled. And uh, I have women who work for me, and now I'm looking at them, and I see plain as day that they're scared. They're scared walking to work. They're scared walking home from work. A lot of them are scared to be home because of um, violence in their homes. And Mm -hmm. um, 
would would you would you come down and train the women who work for me how to defend themselves? This is in an email that where I I could not believe it. It was so beautiful, yeah. so beautiful, and I cried because the news from Ciudad Juarez at the time, all these unsolved mysteries, all the women working in uh, factory towns along the border of the U.S. and Mexico were scared out of their minds because yeah. there were all these murders and rapes happening and no evidence left except finding the raped and murdered bodies out in the desert. Um, yeah. And uh, so you you didn't know as a Mexican worker, if the, you know, the jerk on the corner calling Mamacita, all that kind of stuff, if he was just being a jerk or if it was a prelude to something gruesome, right? Right. So there's always been a level of domestic terrorism for women walking around in the world that a lot of men are not aware of. Uh, yeah. And it's, it's terrifying. And, it, and it's a waste of talent. Part of why I'm so passionate about this is that we can't afford to have half of our world's population be afraid of men anymore because we need all hands on deck. And how many women have we lost to murder, rape, trauma, who dare not stick their necks out one more time? Mm -hmm. And we we can't afford to lose that talent. Yeah, no the, uh, the the scene where in your documentary, one of the the earlier drafts that I saw, um, that, that heart wrenching scene where you, you travel down to Mexico and and you you have the classes with these women showing them how to defend themselves, and you just see this transformation in their faces where they realize they can fight back. It's just really really powerful scene. Um, yeah. What was that like to go down there and film that with them? Oh well, uh, my best friend and co-author of the Safety Godmothers, Lisa Gaeta, and I, uh, we would cry every day, <laughs> not in front of them, but we saw them coming out of their shells and being people who really understood their own power and their own worth. <laughs> I mean, you know, it's palpable, it's predictable, it's simple. Uh, we spend 20 hours with people and they come from regarding themselves as powerless to um, being people of consequence in 20 hours. And it's, it's addictive. You cannot unsee that as a teacher. And this is through the impact uh, work? Yeah, yeah. And other, great, other people are doing great work um, all over the world. I happen to mm-hmm. think impact personal safety is like the Rolls-Royce of these kinds of trainings, but it's not practical. It's hard to find men, first of all, that are willing to put on armor to be beat up. <laughs> it's like you don't want to you don't want to have guys that like it too much. Wink, wink. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> um, because there are there are places for men who like to fight to go fight other men. Um, right. So the the guys that become our male instructors have to be really special um, martial artists that probably experienced bullying when they were children so that they have empathy and compassion and understanding for what that's like to be picked on just because of their size or because they wear glasses or because they're too smart. Um, Mm -hmm. So the guys that train to be uh, instructors with us are really great, really in some ways uh, 
rare breed of guy that also can take that kind of uh, stamina because we use suits that protect our guys, you know, from head to foot. Uh, because if you kicked men in the crotch the way we do, uh, you know, there'd be one class and that's it. They wouldn't come back <laughs> if we didn't have the right. <laughs> if we didn't have the really great armor that we have. So well, there's a uh, I, I love the show uh, King of the Hill, and I'm sure you're aware of that episode featuring yes. The, self-defense class right. in which uh, 13-year-old Bobby Hill attends to defend himself against bullies and there's a great right. line where they teach him it's like all women except for the 13-year-old boy and they teach right. him to, to yell at his I attacker don't I don't know you, you. that's know my you. purse that's my purse <laughs> <laughs> yes <laughs> but at, at impact uh, though if I remember correctly you actually teach women to go for an attacker's eyeballs right not the not the gonads well both but in, I tell you, there you can not, you can never go wrong by working with the biology of a flinch response. There's not one predator on the planet that won't uh, try to protect its eyes because a predator needs to be able to see. Right. And <clears throat> you just cannot help but protect your eyes. So we coach people to go for the eyes because it doesn't take strength. It takes knowing that going for somebody's eyes is going to produce them protecting themselves. And while they're protecting their eyes, then you can go for their groin. You're looking for, a, mm -hmm. you're, you're looking for shots that will make a difference, not just kind of flailing, right. which is what you see in movies. Like, oh, oh, no, no, and beating somebody's chest. Excuse me? That doesn't right. work. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, um, no, no, no. So so um, uh, so, how long have you been working on this this documentary? It sounds like it's been a really long, <laughs> ten, challenging process. Ten, ten years. Ten oh, years. Yeah. Did um, you know what you were getting yourself into? No, and I would never have done it if I'd known what I was getting into. <laughs> but you know, um, uh, it's hard to raise money for documentaries, and when you yeah. hear people who win an Oscar for a documentary just like stunned and saying, Oh my God, this has taken me 12 years. <laughs> you know, you get it. It's like, yeah, <laughs> yes, I get it. You, mm -hmm. you know, so, um, and, and so, uh, you recently traveled to Israel for the debut screening, right? Well, yeah, it was, it was a special screening as a fundraiser. Um, uh. and, we didn't call it a premiere because it really wasn't because it wasn't completely done, but we had gotten the uh, uh, subtitling done in Hebrew, and uh, we were we were um, also rolling out my book Beauty Bites Beast in Hebrew, and so we kind of made it a, a a media event, and we were doing book signings, and it was out in the Israeli equivalent of Barnes and Noble, and radio ads, and all that kind of great stuff. And then we ended the month of our visit there with a special screening for the um, people who had supported the organization that uh, brought us there. So it was right. really, really great. Really great. And, and uh, what, what has the uh, feedback been from audiences who have seen the film? Oh, they laughed. Uh, they cried. They uh, stood up. It was, it was fabulous. <laughs> really fabulous. Yeah. Um, the I'm of the school that if you can't be entertaining and if you can't laugh at yourself and if you can't 
see humor even in the darkest stuff. It's like, well, good luck with that because right. nobody wants to go to a movie and feel like crap. Mm-hmm. You know? Well, I mean, I suppose there are some people who like to do that, but I don't. <laughs> yeah. You know? Um, and it's not yeah, like we're uh, last... The... Go ahead. Sorry? Oh, no. Go, go ahead. No, I mean, it's not like we're laughing at anybody, but there's just... There's humor. And people are kind of surprised at that. But there are places right. where it's predictable that people are going to applaud right in the middle of the documentary because it's, it's great to see the underdog win. People like seeing the underdog win, mm-hmm. you know, so it's, it's cool. And then we have baby animals yeah. in it too. <laughs> <laughs> That's always a winner. <laughs> you know how popular they are. <laughs> uh, is the film completed? When's it going to be released? Well, we, we don't know. We're now in the phase of entering film festivals. And depending on which festivals we get into, um, we'll determine which distributors pick us up, and then we'll come up with who gets to release it when. It's all, you know, we th- this is a real movie, and um, we're not going straight to DVD. We're going mm-hmm. for, you know, a, a, the life of a real documentary, you know, being in theaters and and that kind of stuff. So it's a... It's a rollout process. Yeah, it's going to be really exciting. Yeah, yeah. So we already know that um, mm-hmm. we've saved some lives just by the rough cut being shown. I got an email from somebody who said, man, if I hadn't have seen your rough cut, um, I'd be really injured right now or dead. <laughs> like going, okay, wow. great. Really great. And then another woman said she got out of a hairy situation because she remembered something she saw in the movie. So that's wow, pretty great. So they got attacked after they saw this movie. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yep. So you know, and I get I get emails from my book, people saying, Oh my word, if I hadn't read your book, I'd be dead right now. It's like, boy, that that's uh that's I don't know what to say about that. It's just like, wow, okay. Mm-hmm. My big mouth has well, um, makes it served all work. somebody. Yep. Yeah, Absolutely. Really. <laughs> um, but but even so, you you faced. Um, uh, I remember you telling me you faced a lot of resistance from policymakers and others about women's self defense, right? Like even right. some supposedly progressives. Why do you think uh-huh. that is? Yeah, yeah. Why? Yeah. I think. I think at heart, although I can't really read minds or hearts, I think mm-hmm. there is a fundamental belief, and I go through this in the movie, that uh, it's not possible for a woman to defend herself. Um, we have been so brainwashed and have seen so many action movies where there are at least several uh, myths perpetuated over and over and over and over again. Uh, and it seeps into your consciousness and your bones, and that is that men are uh, almost cyborg-like in their ability to take hit after hit after hit after hit <laughs> and get right back up. And why why would you try to defend yourself when you have grown up regarding men as so superior that you couldn't possibly help yourself? So you just yeah. kind of succumb. And I think there are a lot of men and women who have bought into that. And then it ke- keeps get r- getting ramped up. It's almost violence porn where action movies 
seek to get more violent and more violent and more outrageous and more outrageous. And I mean, don't get me wrong. I've seen lots of action movies that I enjoy. And I also are very clear that the fights you see are absolutely and utterly choreographed. There's nothing yeah. real about them whatsoever. Men, in my experience, are flesh and blood, just like I am. <laughs> you know, and uh, so I think that's part of it. And I also think that the way women have survived is by being pleasing. And that's how they've gotten the little bit of power they've had, which is to be compliant and to be pleasing. So mm-hmm. that works in a lot of situations. But it doesn't work when somebody is using a tool, violence, against another tool being nice, because violent, violence will always trump, excuse the expression, nice. <laughs> right? Yeah. And, uh, and now uh, Impact is getting classes into college campuses, right? Well... There's a project that my friend Anna Kennedy is working on through her landmark um, self-expression leadership program to introduce uh-huh. impact to uh, as many campuses as she, as she can in the Southern California area, which is, you know, we're understaffed, overworked, underpaid at impact. It's a nonprofit, but we, you know, we just have a heck of a time raising money uh, because people are very ambivalent about teaching women to fight. They don't like it at some real fundamental level, you know, because they, they figure, well, if, you know, if she didn't dress badly or if she wasn't out late or if she hadn't been drinking, blah, 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 there are all these things she could have done instead of knowing how to fight. And it's like, okay, well, we've been doing that approach for a long time and it doesn't work. <laughs> it doesn't work. And there's study after study after study that women's self-defense works. I mean, right. we've got it in black and white on paper, studied. But that doesn't seem to matter. You know, one of the things well, and, and I go on, through. Uh-huh. One of the things I go through in the movie is the Violence Against Women Act was very important, and I think that Biden was very interested in redeeming himself in the eyes of women after the Anita Hill <laughs> hearings, right. and so he was a real champion for um, Violence Against Women Act (VAWA). And in 174 pages of what they will grant and what they will consider for violence prevention against women. There's not one, not one, not one mention of self-defense. It's all uh, preventative before it happens, which is great. Good. We want that. And aftercare after the violent event has happened, not one mention of what a woman is supposed to do while it's happening. Not one. And then in the uh, Reauthorization Act of 2013, again, there's not one mention because people go, oh, well, you know, 84. Well, okay, got it. But here we are in the Reauthorization Act 2013, not one mention of what you're supposed to do while the assault is happening. Not one. Crazy. It is crazy. So, you know, I'm I'm not going to shut up until we start to shift policy person. Mm-hmm. Well, um, uh, hopefully that could change in seven months' time when uh, we, we likely, though obviously not guaranteed, will have our first female president. Oh, I mean, that's going to help me uh, not stick out so badly is that, 
you know, it's like it's like if an alien came down and said, "Hey, you must you don't you don't have any older women. <laughs> what happened to them? Are they out to pasture?" Well, the visibility of women my age is so low. They would go, "Well, there's Helen Mirren and let's see, um, <laughs> Helen Mirren and let's see, uh, oh come on, help me here." You know what I mean? It's like my age group is virtually missing. And um, I'm in my prime. I'm kick-ass. A man my age is just hitting his stride. You know, but I was supposed to go away when I hit 35. (laughs) And I didn't go away. Now what are you going to do with me? (laughs) (laughs) Um, You know? So do you ever expect to see this in your lifetime, female president? Well, I've worked my ass off for it. Because, you know, it's just it's just embarrassing to me and appalling to me. And I've seen uh, I've seen Hillary in action on the global stage. I was in Beijing when she gave her women's rights or human rights speech. And, you know, everybody kind of poo poos that like, well, there's not been anybody else out there like that advocating for women and kids ever, ever. And it takes something to do that. It takes big clanging ovaries to do that. And people go, well, you know, nobody else was doing that. And she took a lot of crap for it. And she's always been on the side of the underdog. Now, has she had to play the game? Yeah, because there's not there's not one woman who is going to get as much experience as she has gotten by staying home and being nice all the time or being likable or all the pleasing tap dancing that we're supposed to do so we aren't perceived as too uppity. You know, it's like you just can't win. So, geez, you know, and I'm as nice as they come. I'm a really, really nice person. And I've got nice honed down to a science. And so it's, you know, they said there's a there's some truth to you teach what you must learn. I mean, uh, I, I have had to learn how to set boundaries. I've had to learn how to not just eat it. Because I'm good at that already. <laughs> so, yeah. <laughs> well, Ellen, you're a, you're an inspiration, and I really uh, thank you so much for joining me today. Oh, thank you for having me. I'm really honored that you asked. You know, and yeah, I can't I really wait to. You. I can't wait for you to come to the premiere, the actual premiere. Oh, that's gonna be great. You definitely let yeah. me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Well, thank you. All right. Thanks, Ellen. Okay. Bye. Okay. We, we just heard from author and filmmaker and a million other titles, Ellen Snortland. Uh, check out her work at snortland.com. Thanks for joining us on this week's episode of Well Read. I am your host, Justin Chapman, author of the travel memoir, Saturnalia, traveling from Cape Town to Kampala in search of an African utopia. On the next episode, I'll tell you all about my travels across Africa and read an excerpt from my book. So join us next time, and remember, a life well read is a life well spent.